Hello, my name is Sam Clements, and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picturehouse podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. On today's edition of the show, our February edition of the podcast, we are going to cover four brand new films coming to your local cinema for key releases for February. Now, Yes, there are more than four films coming out in February, but we've picked four of our favourites to task our guest film critics to discuss in the upcoming review section. Uh, If you've not listened to the podcast before, every month we invite two brand new guest film critics on to to discuss the movies. Uh, We send them to the cinema uh, and we ask them to come back and tell us what they thought of of our selection. And on today's edition of the podcast, I am thrilled to be joined by two brand new critics making first-time appearances on the show. Uh, We've got film critic Campbell A. Campbell, who you may have heard on other podcasts. You may have read his words in in various publications, including our very own Picture House Recommends. Uh, Delighted to have Campbell A. on the show. And joining Campbell A., we have Iana Murray, again, a great film critic and someone who, again, you've you've heard on on other podcasts. I am sure uh, these are two great film critics who are on the beat uh, on the pulse of it, and uh, and yeah, we're we're glad to have them on the pod. Our first film this month is Jonathan Glazer's brand new movie, The Zone of Interest. Uh, I think his last film that we played in cinemas was maybe 11 years ago uh, with Under the Skin. Uh, Well, he's back. And in addition to uh, Jonathan's wonderful new film, we are joined by two of the film stars, uh, Sandra Huller and Christian Friedel, who you'll hear right after Campbellet and Iana's review. So first up, let's hear what Campbellet and Diana made of Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which is in cinemas right now. This is I think um, the zone of interest might have been the most unsettling thing I've ever seen in a cinema. So what did you think, Ayanna? Yeah, I mean, I feel the exact same way. I mean, this film, I mean, first it's set in Auschwitz. It's about, you know, the guy who's running Auschwitz uh, concentration camp, uh, Rudolf Huss, I think that's how you say his name. Um, And it's kind of just about his daily life and his wife and his kids, you know, planting the garden, you know, turning off the lights in the house at night and just kind of living their lives. And in between all of that, there's a sort of, you know, you're aware of everything that's going on outside of the garden. And I feel like that's where the film really has all its power. The fact that you have to really tune into the sounds that are happening outside of the garden walls, the screaming, the like incinerators, the the gunshots it's really yeah it's it's a really powerful film in that way and in the way that it forces you to kind of really hone in and all the you know the atrocious acts that are that are happening yeah what you were saying about the sound really struck me as well because when you're sitting in the theater i felt like especially with surround sound you it's really unsettling when you hear all of these horrible noises sort of in the very far off distance where you're not quite sure if it sounds real or not and I think that's 
what's so strange about this film is how dreamlike it feels because you normally expect Holocaust movies to feel very sort of based in in reality because it's very important that you know that it's they're thorough and uh, careful about this historical context but with this it sort of goes into this strange state where it slips between it even slips between the past and the present at one point and I thought that was a really interesting approach especially when Glazer opted to be more realistic than well maybe maybe not more realistic but more realistic than the book because the book is a character based on Hoss and then this is just Hoss himself like named and implicated in full but it was it was just so unsettling to the point that I felt speechless and I found myself thinking of even the documentary The Act of Killing at one point there's a strange moment where the sort of evil just seems to possess this man's body at one point he just sort of starts retching involuntarily (laughs) it's strange because i was so blown away and impressed by the film but with things like this like is never the operative word (laughs) you don't you don't go into zone of interest and just come out saying oh i really i really enjoyed that um but it is very provocative and astonishingly well made you can kind of see why it took 10 years between this and under the skin (laughs) yeah i think in that way zone of interest is sort of a really amazing horror film in the things that it doesn't show you. Like, I, I feel like people say this always, you know, the scariest thing that you kind of witness is like the things you imagine in like the dark corner of your room. And then it kind of works in that way where it doesn't show you everything. But so it kind of forces you to fill in the blanks in that way. And I feel like that's really where it has its power. And yeah, um, just a really horrible you know, <laughs> strange experience, but also like, I just feel like this is one of those like really, I don't know, generational films that you're never going to see a film like this in, in a long, long time, I feel like. Glazer's made a habit of disappearing for a decade or a half <laughs> or, or half a decade and coming back and making one of the best films you've ever seen. <laughs> um, exactly. This, this potentially on the more unpleasant side than something like under the skin although that could be pretty nasty as well but um this is this is really really special i think and a particularly strange film to pick up as many awards accolades as it has because it's very off-putting and unflinching in what it's showing you like you said it's about what you can't see which makes it so much worse but then it does have these sort of concrete moments of reckoning with the scale of genocide that was happening at the time that i was sort of just I've never felt so ill just from a simple cut to another object before. <laughs> Welcome to the Picture House podcast, Christian, Sandra. Uh, thank you for, for uh, talking to us today. I know we're, we're talking during the London Film Festival and everything's quite busy. I'm sure you have to be in lots of places, uh, but it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we're so excited for Zone of Interest. Um, a lot of the team, including myself, were lucky enough to go to Cannes uh, for that first that world premiere screening of it. And we just came out of the cinema absolutely sort of shell-shocked. <laughs> we didn't talk to each other for the rest of the evening. I think we were still uh, processing, but it's a really powerful film and, and we're excited to play it in our cinemas. I was just wondering on, on with, with Cannes, which was a few years ago, a few months ago now, uh, what was that screening like? What's the first, uh, what's the first screening of Zone of Interest like for you both? We were very lucky to have seen it before in Leipzig in a small cinema. We were asking for a private screening because I thought, and maybe you agreed, yep. that it would have been 
very overwhelming and too overwhelming to see it with an audience for the first time. Yeah, so it was the second time actually, but it still it felt like the first time. Absolutely for it? me too, and it was overwhelming. And in a way, I'm comfortable to watch this movie, but it was overwhelming, and I'm, I was overwhelmed because I realized with an audience in the room, uh, Jonathan's visions work, and that was really great to realize that. Yeah, we also felt the strong feelings of the audience while watching it. It was dead silent in the room, which is really rare in a cinema, I feel. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people, when they're watching their films, they're looking for you know audience laughter or cheering. But I think this film, actually, the silence shows the film has worked. It shows yeah. it's put the audience in a place where they're reflective and, and contemplative. Uh, there. But yeah, it was a really powerful, and that screening room is so big, it was, it's up 2,000 seats, and to hear 2,000 people be silent, that's extremely powerful. Absolutely, yeah. And I was really touched after the screening, and I was, I, the only thing I don't like was that the credit was cut, because the music of Mika Levy is so important, and it it starts with a, yeah, with an overture, and it needs time after the movie, and I, yeah, I needed that time, but we we hadn't this time, and it was, but it was, the screening was an experience I never forget. Absolutely. What's it like for you as actors watching your own performances? Do you are you able to engage with the piece? Are you sort of looking at what your your own work uh, when you're when you're rewatching your own stuff? Yeah, but it's more of a thing that belongs to our profession it's more of a controlling uh, I don't know a controlling moment to see if uh, what we thought of would it would transport itself to the audience or even to to ourselves I can only speak for myself but yeah I hate to watch myself um, on screen mm. um, I have no problems to hear my voice when I'm singing <laughs> but when I'm acting it's uh, difficult for me but um, in this special case we observe the characters here and it's 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 it's, it's another view um, and another kind of filmmaking and um, yeah I was I was when I saw the movie for the first time with Sandra together in Leipzig then I was curious to see all the other scenes and to see the editing process and to hear the sounds because we we don't hear that sounds when we are making this film um and to see all the visual effects i was this is mind blowing what they are doing all the all the team and the post production and um yeah and to hear mika levy's music that was all this combination of these things it's i was curious to see that and i was really impressed to to see that it, as a from a uh, as an actor or working on this film, and then in Cannes, I saw the film in in maybe in another way, more like a human being as a normal audience watching an uncomfortable. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 crazy to say that, but important movie. So it's not my decision to say that, but I think it's it's um, it's a piece of art it's so unique so and yeah 
I guess there's a little bit of distance now from that can screening yeah. and, and from when you made the film. But do, do you remember when this first came to you? How did how did uh, you know, the zone of interest enter your lives? It started. Uh, um, I had to do a selfie uh, to describe myself and only to say why I did become an actor without knowing the script, without knowing this uh, the potential role, only knowing it's a new project of Jonathan Glazer. But I had the feeling, I dis and it, it's my decision to do it in German or in English. And I had the feeling, okay, he's searching for um, natural things and I do it in my own language in German. And later he said to me, I was the only person wow. doing it in German. <laughs> and yeah, because um, he doesn't speak German, but he feel the truth, he hear it. And um, like Michael Haneke said, the ear don't lie. If you close your eyes and you only listen, then you hear the truth. But your eyes uh, sometimes uh, betray you. Is it right? Yeah. And um, and then I met Lo uh, Jonathan and his longtime friend and producer Jim Wilson here for the first time in a pub in London. And then he shares with me his thoughts, his vision, and he always shares with us um, all his thoughts, all he dis all his decisions. He's very transparent in this way, and this gives you a lot of trust. Trust him. So um, because there were some scenes, I was really afraid to do this from a personal thing but I trust him a lot and I'm, I was really surprised about myself to do this or um, yeah and then um, we had a classical audition or casting with the late uh, Simone Bear uh, in, in Berlin and, um, and we had there it, the conversations about the subject matter starts. And I I remember the first conversation with Sandra. It was so interesting to hear um, her thoughts and um, maybe she can tell you about this later. But um, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I've, I remember one, one great sentence I will never forget. Um, and I... I was thinking about this sentence a lot of times and then when I saw the movie for the first time in, in, in Leipzig and then in Cannes again, I remember this sentence from Sandra. She said, um, I, will, I will never give my tears to Hedwig Hörs. So, or, so, and I've, I think this is a great sentence because um, I was not thinking about this but then I realized what it means and... Um, um, yeah, I was at the beginning a little bit naive and I want to be a part of Jonathan Glazer's new movie and his vision and I felt there is a connection between Jonathan and me and um, and yeah, this that was my story. To, uh. Sorry, <laughs> it was so long, but yeah. No, no, it's it's totally fine. Mine is slightly different. I received a two-pager from Simone Bear, who is sadly deceased, um, with an argument between a man and a woman. And I didn't know who they were or who it was for. 
And I had other plans for that summer, so I didn't really, I was hesitating to, to go to the casting. Uh, and then she told me, no, it's really, really important. And sometimes it happens in Germany. You, my decision always comes with the whole script. I can read the whole script and I can say if I want to be part of it or not, meet the director. When we have international productions, it's always different. There's a big secret about around it, uh, a lot of restrictions. So it was kind of, uh, you know, why? And um, so I agreed to go there, but I was hesitating a little bit. And then as soon as I agreed, she told me what it was about and who it was with. And obviously I knew who Jonathan was because I knew his works before. Uh, but the topic was something that I really want, didn't want to be involved in. So I had a really strong, I have to say, physical reaction to it. Um, it was really painful and I really, uh, uh, there was a lot of fear and uh, rejection. Yeah, so um, so I had to decide again. And I remember the day of the audition when we met, when we had the casting together, was at the same day I recorded an audio guide for the Jewish Museum in Berlin. And I was so schizophrenic in a way to do that and then go to the casting. It's such a coincidence. You cannot even That's think wild. of um, So that was where I was coming from. And I decided very much before what Christian said that I, none of my emotions or my, of my emotional capability would go into this woman. And if Jonathan would accept that, that maybe we could work together. But I will not make a biopic about anybody or give my empathy to anybody that I so deeply hate. And um, we did this casting, which I thought from my side was really, really bad because I didn't give anything into it. Um, and after that, he he asked us if we wanted to do that. I think you had another moment of a conversation with him. We had, I had a meeting later. He He came to Berlin. And then we talked about the subject matter, about the script and about the character. And then we had the lunch together with uh, Simone and Alexandra. And then he stands up and asks me, uh, do you want to be a part of this movie? Do you want to play Rudolf? And it, it felt like a marriage proposal. And I said immediately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, but it's great because Jonathan is... He's he's a really kind, a beautiful human being, and um, and it means a lot to him. This project is so emotional; it's so important to him, and you feel it the whole time. And it's it's great to feel that because sometimes you have a project; it's another film project, but this is not another film project of Jonathan Glazer. It's it means a lot, and yeah. It also felt like really somewhat not only inventing another process of filming with the multi-camera system mm. and the prepared set and the freedom of the actors in it, not thinking about light or positions or anything like that, not having any interruptions with takes of 10 minutes, but at the same time, re not reinventing, but rethinking the the representation of the Holocaust and of fascism and also of Uh, yeah, this whole phenomenon, this whole horrible um, phenomenon, phenomenon, Jesus, phenomenon. This is a song from 
I think what it does is, you know, Jonathan's films always feel so special. They always feel like events and they always feel really unique in his filming technique. And reading about how this film was made on a production level is, is fascinating. I was wondering if you can just talk a bit more about the, the set. You mentioned the multi-camera. But I guess am I right in saying that there was lots of fixed cameras on the, on the set? And that gives Jonathan a lot of footage um, to, to sort of choose from. But uh, I guess you don't exactly know which camera he's going to use. So you're performing a 360-degree uh, performance. <laughs> That's right. And that was um, <clears throat> something that none of us had ever done before. Some people describe it to theater work, but it's not the same because you try to tend to play to the front so that people can see what you're doing. But, um, yeah, this this surveillance feeling was really important also for the acting itself to... Um, and to feel watched all the time and also judged all the time, which is a very interesting feeling that we normally don't like to have as actors and human beings. But for this particular work, to me, it felt really important to feel the judgment, the overall judgment and surveillance all the time. Um, the weight of the guilt itself that the characters wouldn't feel, but it was present during the process like all the time. Yeah, And it was great to to have this luxury this time we had because there were only one or two scenes per day and uh, we came to the set and the set were prepared and and immediately it starts so and there were no technicians the focus puller were in the basement Jonathan and his team were in a trailer next to the set with 10 monitors and um one ear of Jonathan was the original sound and the other ear was the translator and it's it's amazing so but we felt alone in this house we we had us and searching situations so we had one scene maybe a birthday cake eating birthday cake or something or um and there was one scene sometimes we we shot scenes simultaneously at the same time um, for example, Rudolf sitting with the Töpf guys uh, describing a new uh, chimney and next in the next room Hedwig sits with her girlfriends. Then Aniela, the housemaid, is going through the house preparing the the next thing for Rudolf and Shit. outside is, is all these commandants coming, the officers or soldiers, uh, and this was shot in the same time and and you hear your colleagues in the next room <laughs> and it felt like a normal situation in a normal house so and that that is allows you to to create this and to find this and to do variations we had a lot of variations and uh, i think the editing process must be <laughs> amazing but he works together with a familiar team of Jonathan and a great team, masters of 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 their work, and yeah, it must be really. I guess knowing how it was filmed and not knowing which camera 
is going to be used. Like when you actually do sit down and see the final film, that must be, you know, a, yeah. a, a bit of a, a surprise as well, in a, in a way, to see what choices have yeah, been made. You are so curious, curious to see that. What yeah, decisions he made. That's true. And also, he, of course, he, I mean, it was very obvious that he wanted to avoid any sort of fetishization of these people or that actors would get into positions where they would have to decide with how they position themselves to the camera or that when you say these horrible and do these horrible things and somebody would come in and powder your nose, that is something that we really don't want. Um, so he chose this sort of uh, technique to... Yeah, to avoid this sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, like all the things that we don't like about filmmaking, he just cut them out. It sounds fascinating, but also, yeah, it must be you know, quite a novelty to make a film in this way and must be quite strange moving on to another project, which is maybe a bit more conventional uh, after the zone of interest. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I shot on film after, which was completely different. Not even uh, a digital, but a real film. Yeah. And Crazy. we had uh, some phone calls and messaging. Uh, how boring. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes is this waiting, waiting and, and stay in an energy level. So, and this is luxury. We had this energy for half of the day and we were concentrated on the situations uh, the whole time. And this is, is great um, because to have this energy for 12 or 14 hours, it's so hard and it's, it's not even boring. It's uh, sometimes yeah, really difficult. Yeah, that sounds like a, that, that process where you, you're sort of on, you're working more and you're, you don't have that, that break, I guess. Yeah. Um, must put you in a... I guess it's probably helpful for the performance, maybe, but it puts you in a very particular place uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as we're talking, we're, you know, you're sort of the films at lots of festivals and and uh, you know very popular, lots of excitement around the screenings. Um, how does this part feel for you when you're you get to reteam uh, with the team and, and actually talk to audiences about the film? Yes, again, everything has many, many sides on it. It's really, uh, of course, it's a pleasure to meet the team and Christian again. It's of it's wonderful to travel at the same time. It's really not the usual feeling to talk about this film. It's something that is, it's, it's sometimes really difficult to find the right words to speak about the topic. And um, as long as you ask technical questions, it's sort of easy because it's facts. And when we speak about how it felt or... Uh, um, when you when we want to talk about politics, it gets difficult immediately. So it's 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 very very interesting. I feel that it's same. It's more. It's it feels more cautious than more more. Yeah, more. Yeah, we have to be careful with so many things, uh, and also the more we, I mean, we avoided any sort of glamour in the shooting, and now we have it. You know, we have clothes on. We. People are taking pictures of us and there is this sort of glorification of actors that we definitely didn't want to do to the characters. So there is a, a thing, something so fit together here and we have to kind of endure. And I don't mean it, you know, I don't mean it as cruel because I'm just, it's just a lack of words. Endure this sort of ambiguity, this, yeah, the, how do you say, contradictory. The, yeah, that things don't fit in a way. It's great to speak about this movie and to have a promotional tour and a journey with this movie in your pocket. Sometimes you have a movie in your pocket and you have to say 
what a great and wonderful work and and um yeah because this is part of a deal but with this movie um it's i'm 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 really proud to be a part of Jonathan's vision to play alongside uh from to Sam, with Sandra and all the other actors that it's i'm really proud of it and it's great to to bring this movie in the world that many people watch this movie and think about this movie the subject matter and what it means to us now because there are human beings human beings doing terrible things to human beings and we live in difficult political times and and we have to think this darkness inside of us um, and hopefully we learn from our history but do we learn from the history that's the question yeah, absolutely it's, a, it's an incredible uh, piece of work um, I've seen the film twice now and I'm looking forward to seeing it a third time I keep noticing more detail when I watch tonight. my second time I'm gonna I cannot make it tonight sadly um, but uh, I saw it uh, yeah, earlier in the week and then I saw it back in Cannes so I'll be I'll be back for round three soon enough uh, thank you so much for talking to us thank you so thank much you thank you much. let's go somewhere new see worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Well, there we go. Thank you so much to Sandra Huller and Christian Friedel for talking to us when they were in town just before Christmas uh, during the London Film Festival with The Zone of Interest. Sandra Huller's on, uh, on on quite a ride right now, uh, especially in the awards season. Zone of Interest is a film that's been getting a lot of accolades and Sandra Huller uh, for her performance in this film and uh, Anatomy of a Fool, uh, where she's up for lead actress. Uh, so yeah, let's keep a, keep an eye on those awards happening in March. Next up, we've got Cord Jefferson's directorial debut, American Fiction, also in cinemas right now, uh, which has an incredible cast, including Jeffrey Wright, Issa Rae, Sterling K. Brown, and, and so many other wonderful actors. This is a, a screenplay that he also wrote. And uh, for more American Fiction chat, uh, check this pod feed because we had a uh, American Fiction special podcast uh, which has just gone up it should be right next to this podcast uh, in your listen queue uh, and that podcast features Cord Jefferson as well as stars Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K Brown uh, so we'll have a link for that in the show notes and and do check that one out but before you do that stick around to hear what Campbellay and Diana made of American fiction how did you come to write this book what really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is gonna be a real father this time around. Thank you. Your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. Look at what they publish. Look at what they expect us to write. I just want to rub their noses in it. 
So, Campbell, this is a American fiction. It's a big turnaround from the zone of interest. What did you think? I was really surprised by this one because I had never I've never read um the book is based on Erasure by Percival Everett, but the premise I thought was so clever with this um I think we're in a moment where I think people are paying a lot of careful attention to representation on film and I think there's a th- canniness in this film that understands that rep- the, like the word representation is sort of just a starting point and it's also very important about the kind of things that people are being represented in and this kind of takes that ball and runs with it as a joke because the premise is Jeffrey Wright as a sort of um, a professor with writer's block and his agent is telling him to write books that are more black <laughs> with big scare quotes around that and so he sort of in protest writes this fraudulent really offensive novel which is like a very stereotypical sort of 90s gangster fare i'm i'm forgetting the name of the wesley snipes film that it was kind of riffing on at one point oh it was like like, like when there was like a million new jack cities <laughs> every other month and where it sort of became cliche uh, not that new jack city is a bad film uh, I will, i'll go on record and say that it's great but it takes turns it into this parody and it just becomes so un- insanely successful. And of course, uh, there are a lot of white executives who jump on it and they're like, oh, this is fantastic, like really important for your people sort of thing, very patronizing. And I think American Fiction makes a very funny, not romp out of it, but sort of it gets, it's fun in how increasingly absurd it gets, but also balances a lot of very earnest family drama at the same time, which was interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's a film of two halves in that way, where one of it is this really, you know, sharp satire. And I feel like it's saying some really, like, you know, much needed things about what kind of stories people are allowed to tell to the sort of white masses, I guess. And then also the other half is like this really lovely family drama. And Jeffrey Wright's character is kind of dealing with his mother who has Alzheimer's and the difficult relationship he has with his siblings. Sterling K. Brown is really great as um, this guy sort of going through like a midlife crisis. And I, there's a really good gag, I feel like, where every time you see him, he's wearing fewer clothes. Um, <laughs> and so he's a great, he's a great part of it. And I'm glad he got an Oscar nomination because I that's a, it was a fun character he had. But yeah. Still the, really good performances. Yeah, yeah, all amazing, Jeffrey Wright especially. But yeah, I feel like if you're someone, you might feel one way or the other about which half of the film you prefer. And I feel like I was drawn more to the family aspect of it because I feel like part of what, you know, Jeffrey Wright's character, his crusade is that, you know, there are more stories that that we can tell than just the sort of boxes that we're put into. And that half of the film is sort of walking the walk on that sort of demonstrating what kinds of stories black people people of color can can tell and it's a really it's a really touching heartwarming element of the film and it, and I loved the sort of intimacy of it I thought it was really lovely it's a good crowd pleaser as well I think which is a funny line to walk when you've got quite serious subject matter at its heart and I did uh there's a moment early on that I think it's in the trailer that really brought the house down for me when he is like quite early in the film when he's at a book reading for another author who is kind of just fully on 
the money train for like what his agent is trying to get him to do and sort of sell out a little bit. And he's just sort of staring incredulously. And then this white woman gets up in right in front of Jeffrey Wright and just starts applauding on her feet. And it's absolutely killed me. I think there's some really great uh, sort of visual gags in there. And it takes it to the movie industry itself as well. And not just literature. It's not sort of like um, inside baseball for, <laughs> for racism books. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. Jeffrey Wright, uh, <laughs> absolutely killing it just as the world's most incredulous man. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's really nice that it's sort of playing on who he's, I wouldn't say typecast, but you know, the kind of actor that he is. It's sort of playing on the kinds of roles that you see Jeffrey Wright in. And um, I thought that was a really- he so many professors. <laughs> yeah. he's just He just gives off academic vibes. <laughs> it's funny seeing him as sort of an academic having a bit of a burnout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's been playing them too long. Thank you, Iana. Thank you, Cambalet. February is a stacked month. There's a lot of buzzy films, a lot of highly anticipated films, and a lot of films uh, which are in the awards race this month. It's a good month for catching up if you, uh, you know, if you're, you're very invested in things like the BAFTA and the Oscar awards, uh, so you can tick all the films off your checklist. Right, let's move on. Our third film this month is uh, Sean Durkin's new film. Sean Durkin, who way back when made Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, and more recently The Nest, starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. Well, he's back with a brand new film called The Iron Claw, which has a stacked cast. It's got Zac Efron, it's got Jeremy Allen White, and it's got Harris Dickinson, who you may have saw last year in Scrapper and the year before in, in Triangle of Sadness. Let's see what Iana and Campbell made of the Iron Claw. Ever since I was a child, people said my family was cursed. Mom tried to protect us with God. Pop tried to protect us with wrestling. He said if we were the toughest, the strongest, nothing could ever hurt us. I believed him. We all did. Morning. Pants tomorrow, please, David. Perry, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Woo! Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. What do you want in life, Kevin Von Eric? More ribs. <laughs> I want to be with my family. You know, be with my brothers. What do you like to do with your brothers? So, new male weepy, the Iron Claw. I vaguely knew about the story going in, so a lot of its more tragic elements didn't quite take me by surprise in the same way as it probably will a lot of people because because I'm a wrestling fan. But, Iana, I was wondering what you knew about the Iron Claw going into it. I knew they were wrestlers, and that's about it. So, yeah, it took me completely by surprise by the end of the film, I was fully, audibly sobbing in ways I've never <laughs> sobbed at a film before. <laughs> like, truly, it really, like, struck a chord with me. Yeah, I mean, if if you don't know anything about the Von Eriks in the film, there's four brothers. I think in real life there's five, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, they're all part of this sort of legacy wrestling family, and their father sort of pushes them to you know, be in the ring, work out, go through all of that. And it sort of takes a toll on all of them. But despite all of that, the brothers have this really 
touching, you know, close relationship. And that's sort of the driving force of the film. Kevin Bonerick, who's played by Zac Efron, really great in the film also. You know, he always goes on about how much he loves his brothers and wants to protect his brothers. So it's really, you know, it's really devastating when you see what happens, but I won't delve into all of that. I'm curious, because I knew nothing about wrestling, actually. What was your take on the wrestling sequences in the film? I had so much fun watching the wrestling sequences as well, which feels strange. Again, it's it's a strange thing to say when the film overall is so tragic, but um, they really, you can tell the passion for the sport. People won't like that I say that, but saying sports entertainment is too long, (laughs) even though I said it anyway. But you can tell the passion behind the making of those sequences. I believe they're choreographed by um, Chavo Guerrero, um, who also did uh, wrestling choreography on GLOW. And while you're watching it, there's a lot of sequences where you can recognize sort of the same kind of in-ring storytelling that you get in sort of week-to-week wrestling shows. And it's just, it's so much fun. And you can see they have these big long takes where you, it's just to make sure that you know it's really Zac Efron doing a crossbody from the top rope in these uh, different sequences. But yeah, it's just really dedicated to getting that part of it right. And I also think that the physicality of it is so important to the wider story they're telling as well. Because I think one thing that strikes me is that when in when you're watching a wrestling match, a lot of the wrestlers are doing like their own sound effects, basically. So like, uh, sorry to break the illusion a little bit here, but when sometimes when they kick someone, they'll like slap their leg like very quickly at the same time. So you don't see it. But in the Iron Claw, there's like actually sound where, I don't know, a guy will get hit and it sounds like a guy getting hit in any other movie. And when you go back to their relationship with their father and he's constantly being like, you just got to grit your teeth and get through it. So you're not trying hard enough. I think it make, the wrestling makes that hit home that much harder because you're seeing these guys just like killing themselves in the ring um, for so little praise from their dad. And it's just, I think it's so elegant in how it ties everything back into that relationship and into Efron, back into Efron's performance where he's just like, you can kind of feel more and more weight upon his shoulders as you go. And he's had this amazing like physical transformation. It's just, it's so strange because he just, he's the biggest man I've seen on camera this year. (laughs) And it's still, he feels so vulnerable and like he's kept, like he's just straining beneath so much stuff because of what's happening. And it's crazy that the real story is even more tragic than the one in the film that they had to dial it down. So it felt potentially, so it felt less overwhelming um, and so for people interested in it, I recommend watching an episode on the on the Von Erics of Dark Side of the Ring. But I think it never felt sort of like tabloid sensationalism in telling that story. It just felt very sweet and loving and uh, very much pointed the finger at they thought who was responsible because they talk about this curse that's plaguing the family. And they're like, the curse is masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the wider you know, point of the film is that masculinity is sort of this crushing pressure that a lot of men have. And especially when you're in wrestling, I guess. Something else I wanted to point out was just, I really love, you can really feel like the passion that everyone brought to the film and not to plug my own stuff, but I recently like, talked to the costume designer and Jennifer Starzik, who who has really amazing costumes, I should say, the robes, the the shorts, the mesh tank tops, they're all really great. But she mentioned that um, they couldn't get wrestling boots 
And so she just searched on Instagram, like who, what any fans who'd made replica, you know, Kerry Von Erich boots. And she found, she found this guy, his, his page is called Aces Boots on Instagram. And she sort of messaged him and he was like, hell yeah, I'll do it. And he sort I think, I think he's in Mexico, but he drove all the way across Texas just to like hand deliver these boots to, to the set. So I really feel like in every element, in every, you know, in every stage, in every sector of production, you can feel that passion come through. I didn't know that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, moving swiftly on to our final film of the month, we've got The Taste of Things, which is in cinemas on Valentine's Day, 14th of February, and it's uh, it's the new film from director Tranan Hung and stars Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche actually came over to London recently and uh, stuck around for a podcast interview with us. So what we'll do is we'll hear what Iana and Campbell thought of The Taste of Things, and we'll go right into my chat with the star of the film, Juliette Binoche. Please enjoy. Nous passons plus de temps ensemble que bien des époux. Je vous le demande encore, Jim. Marion. Combien de fois encore allez-vous me poser cette question? So Cambley, our last film was France's submission for the Oscars and a Unfortunately, didn't make it to to the final top five. So I'm curious what what you thought of the film. Was it robbed? It made me really hungry. So as a sort of act of petty revenge, I'm like, I'm glad it didn't get that Oscar. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I think it's a shame that it missed out on the category because it is really, really lovely. I can see why it's not quite as uh quite the populist hit as something like anatomy of a fool would be because it's just very slow and patient and again i I said dreamlike for a different film but this is dreamlike in a nice way (laughs) yeah i can i can see why it didn't quite happen for it and it's a shame it didn't but at the same time i think it's just kind of got plenty of its own merit to run on anyway so i think it's fine but yeah it's it's hard to say because it's not a super it doesn't feel like a super plot heavy film it's about a gourmand and his chef in 19th century france the film just opens with a long stretch of them cooking a big meal for his friends i think they might be diplomats if memory serves and you sort of just luxuriate in the cooking of these meals for a really long time and eventually it turns around in that the gourmand actually has to do some cooking himself for uh the chef played by uh juliette binoche because she falls ill for a bit. And it's interesting, it's turning from this sort of professional courtesy into an act of love, and it's this very romantic, sweeping film, and the camera's moving around very slowly and nicely. Yeah, I don't know, I just just thought it was really nice, and I'm uh, glad I actually had some dinner ready (laughs) while watching it. What did you think? Yeah, I remember seeing this film actually at Cannes for the first time, and just feeling... 
absolutely starving the whole time because the food looked so amazing and I do want to highlight the first sort of half hour stretch of the film where it's just them cooking there's barely any conversation happening really and you just have to you're just witnessing this like beautiful you know multi-course meal being made and it's a sort of film that makes you wish that you could smell films because it looked amazing and I'm really desperate to try all of the meals that they made in that film. The taste of things in 4DX. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see that. I would love to see that. But yeah, um, to your point as well, I think this is a film that's also a love story, but it's really beautifully and sort of delicately told. And it's not, I feel like it's not a romance film in that, you know, in that sort of traditional way where it's like, there's a meet cute, they flirt and and they get together on all, this, all these things. It's sort of these people that have this sort of symbiotic relationship to them. They sort of come to realize, you know, what they have is love and it sort of naturally happens in that way. And because of that, it feels really beautiful. And also the way that food plays into that, cooking is this sort of love language between them. It's like an act of service that... Yeah, so in that way, it feels like, you know, love is sort of infused, not to be cheesy, but into every, you know, cooking sequence in the film. I feel like it was really beautiful. I I actually cried so many times watching watching that film. I, I just thought it was really, like, the emotion is, like, really overwhelming in that film. I don't know if you feel the same way, but um, I just thought it was, I thought it was really lovely, and it, and it just got me feeling really emotional I don't know how you felt about it (laughs) I found it overwhelmingly nice (laughs) Um, yeah you're like you're right that they don't have this sort of typical romance arc like they don't have a moment where it's like oh there's a misunderstanding and they break apart it's sort of just this very natural flow to their relationship as it just maybe it maybe it doesn't entirely change I think I like what I like about the film is that it feels like that it's sort of always been this way but they just didn't have the words to acknowledge it so the food acts as a medium for that and not just the making of it, but their sort of under, their collaboration on making something because it's like a as a gourmet, there's a creative element to it. So there's a lot of different things at play, even as as you said, even though as you said, there's not many words spoken for quite a long time. But I found it very soothing. Maybe not, um, <coughs> which is why I maybe didn't find it like I was. O- I wasn't overcome with emotion over it. I think I was more like I was just sort of taken along for the ride. I found it really just pleasant to watch (laughs) there's a really wonderful sequence in the film towards the beginning where um this uh young girl comes in she's a niece of one of the one of their staff and um benoit majumel's character um who's the gourmand he asks her to taste this sauce and sort of name every ingredient and she's sort of a prodigy in that way where she's she's able to name 20 different ingredients in the in the sauce and I thought that was really lovely just because yeah at the same time it cuts back and forth to them making that sauce and it feels like you know this is a love story but it's also you know not to be obvious a really loving generous love letter to food and um I I really love that
Good afternoon, Julia, and welcome to London. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for not only doing this interview, but for coming over uh, just before Christmas as we're recording. And I know you've been to a couple of Picture House cinemas, one in Notting Hill, uh, one on Fulham Road uh, in Chelsea. Uh, how's, how's your time in London been? It's been wonderful. I've been very busy. <laughs> a lot of interviews and, and Q&As, which I love because it's a, it's a way to be in touch with people who have mm. just seen the film. And so it's a... It's, uh, it's a joyful situation. Is it something, I guess, a part of the process you enjoy, sort of getting out there and going to cinemas and, and meet, meeting the audience? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's been uh, so far, you know, uh, the film has been, you know, nicely perceived and mm. uh, people love talking about food mm -hmm. and, and love because it's, it's, they're both together, actually, in this film. So it's been a, a kind of... A, light experience and 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 deep at the same time because in the film you have this you know the story is is going into uh the fear of of course of losing someone and mm. and so it concentrates the the need of being together uh but it's uh there's a lightness in Hume's films uh uh, that goes with, of course, with with the food and all those characters we see, mm. but also my character uh, has this way of giving herself until until the end mm. with a heartful way, and she's a complete kind of soul who <laughs> wants to, you know, to prove her love until you know in any way she can. It's a really masterful film, I think, and it, like you say, it, it draws you in with the, the appeal of food and that celebration, but it's actually about this very deep relationship, this long-standing relationship, and um, it feels real, it feels lived in. Like, I, I really loved being in the world of the film, and I was a little bit sad when it ended. <laughs> <laughs> is that something that when you first started to talk about this film, is that something that appealed to you as an actor? When I read the script, the first one actually, I said to Hung, I would love to be in your film, but you've got to de develop a little bit my character mm. because uh, it was it was there, but not enough for my taste. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he did that. He worked on the script for about a month and came back with the script and that we shot. And so I was I was uh, happy to go on that journey with him. And we had a hard time to find the the male actor because two of them dropped the film and I don't know why it feels sometimes that a film is is written somewhere mm -hmm. in the sky and somebody's <laughs> going to come and save it and save it and and Benoit Magimel who I had met like years before mm. I was uh, wanted to um, to do it Benoit Magimel and probably reading the script because it was about food and cooking and all that, he probably said yes for it. <laughs> but also because I was in it, probably wanted to work with me. So we ended up being in front of each other after 25 years of not working together. We have a daughter in life, you know, together. Mm. So suddenly it, a lot of layers in the film yeah, were sounds related like a lot. to us <laughs> and and was meaningful and and very moving for me because I... You know, hadn't seen him that much during all those years, mm. and uh, and being able to be in front of him finally and saying the words that Hung wrote uh, for us and expressing, you know, love, which is really uh, what's the this experience has been mm. uh, through those characters and the story. Uh, it was just a way of reconciliation and and uh, and a gift for our daughter as well. Mm. 
she somehow avoided to see the film when we <laughs> after we'd made it because she was probably frightened to see see it. But at the end, uh, of course, she was overwhelmed. Mm. But after a few days, she said, "Yes, it was healing. Thank you." Oh, I mean, that's you know, it's, it's lovely to get the feedback from the audience, but feedback from family uh, that special. must be really special. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I um, I mean, I, I was lucky to see this film in Cannes uh, when it had its world premiere, and you know, it was it, it's really stuck with me. That was in May. We're talking now in December. Um, it does feel like this film has has something special uh, about it, and I think part of it is your relationship with Benoit on screen. You know, it, again, it just it feels so real and tangible, and I felt so invested. Uh, in yes, and also uh, the film has its own pace. It's uh, it's the there's a slowness to it that we're not used to anymore mm. because we're in, maybe some people because they're in cities or we used to have lots of cuts in films mm. that, you know, is is trying to always uh, do it for you instead of you doing it and mm. taking the time of seeing what interests you in the film. So that's the pace is very special to Hung and to the story. And also it, it's related to nature, it's related to seasons, it's related to ingredients of the generosity of what the planet is giving us mm. and what, how we transform this into, you know, enhanced food like uh, culinary art, which mm. is very specific. Also in France, you know, because uh, there's a history with it. But definitely the love, the love story is, 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 uh, is very special because the, the role I'm playing, she wants to have to keep her independence, mm. uh, even though it's taking place in, uh, at the end of 19th century. But there's uh, that need of knowing, she, my character is not trying to raise and to go into a higher place in mm. society. She... She knows where she belongs and she's a cook. She wants to stay in the kitchen. She excels, you know, what she's doing and mm. what she's doing. And she wants to stay in her bedroom, you know, in the attic and, mm. and, and, and not go to the master's bedroom. You know, she has this boundary she's giving and it keeps her free in a way. And so I, 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 lo I love her modesty and, mm -hmm. and, and playing her was a kind of vacation <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, because she, even though she knows the, you know, her path is going to stop at a certain point in mm. the story, there's uh, there's a love of giving until the end, and it reminds me of you know the candle going down, the mm. uh, the body of the candle melts, but the flame stays in until the end, and I love that because I think that's what life should be, that you stay, the insight stays always, but. Mm. I mean, the the body is changing, and it's part of you know what the the sort of uh, you know what life is giving you, but mm. is taking you back. <laughs> is taking absolutely. Yeah. She's always this sort of point of uh, is focal point for the audience, and she burns so bright on screen. I really love the. Um, she's so confident in what she does, and she's sort of got this great relationship with Benoit's character. In that, you know, he's the showman. He goes out. He's the chef, but she knows she rules the kitchen. <laughs> Um, there and, and a lot of the relationship on screen is is not said through words but just through actions. That's true. And, uh, yeah. and I really sort of liked that. You know, you could you could probably turn the sound off for a bit and just enjoy and totally get the relationship from how you're acting with each other. Yes, that's quite right. Almost the words are secondary, even mm. though Hung, who you know came to France when he was twelve, mm. uh, he came from Vietnam and 
And he really embraced the French culture. And I would say this France is, is even more French than a French could have done <laughs> because embracing you know, the French cooking, but also the French relationships, you mm. know, uh, and literature because it's, it's quite well written. Mm. It was it was fascinating for me to see that, and I've, I'm very touched by it, and because it's, uh, I think it's uh, wonderful to have as somebody who can see the qualities of a culture, because mm. it uh, it felt to me that French they don't we don't know how to embrace our culture. There's something about it, you know, that is I don't know why it's like that. Maybe it's uh, yeah, sort of a reflection of his, you know, because he came to France at a young age, you know, what he remembers and his sort of tribute to this culture right. which has yes. adopted him yeah. uh, there. I think, yeah, again, as a, you know English person watching this, you know, it's, it's sort of very much the romantic view of French cooking. And, and I, I was head over you know, heels for it. <laughs> uh, just on, on, the, on the cooking scenes, how did you and Benoit prepare for those? You know, is that something, an extra thing you had to learn uh, ahead of this uh, when you're rehearsing and, and uh, getting ready? to do this film yes we we did rehearse uh the day before we started shooting but we had some links some videos that Hung had done in Pierre Gagnon's kitchen oh, wow. restaurant mm. so we knew what was coming before after the pace of things how you were making this and that and because Benoit is a very good cook and I cook it as well not as well as him, I have to say, but uh, I think that, you know, we, we rely on our knowledge of cooking, you know, and having children, you have to cook. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know less how to order food on telephone than I know to cook. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, part of being from another generation, an older generation. But um, yeah, Hung really really visualized how he wanted to shoot and yet he had to be flexible as we were shooting because you know the the pace of cooking and the stove we had and and also the right hand of Pierre Gagnère Michel Nav was with us helping us to um, put it together and having the right pace and having the right gestures so he was there as a, he was making sure that everything was done in the right way mm. Is that quite intimidating, having a very famous professional chef, uh, you know, sort of overseeing um, the work you're doing? He was the right hand of Pierre Gagnier. It was not Pierre Gagnier oh, who was see, there. Yeah. So we were like brother and sister, you oh, know, right. really, because he, first of all, he's, he was very open, mm -hmm. Michel, and very happy to give tips and helping as much as he could. He worked so hard during the shooting and, and so, and as soon as I finished the scene, I would run to the, his kitchen to learn other tips oh, wow. <laughs> because I was like knowing the mystery of, you know, behind the scene thing mm -hmm. and, uh, and you want to know everything, you know, and of course today I forgot everything because I, it works when you repeat things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in cooking and, but I, I, I can go back to the book he gave me. He gave us mm -hmm. uh, uh, a sort of a book of recipes that we learned throughout the film. So it's uh, it was very generous of him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you often hear about, you know, sometimes making a film leaves you with uh, you know, experiences that you take forward in life, but this has left you with some tangible uh, cooking tips. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's, in, that's incredible. I think... Um, 
again like you know, the film is 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 really mouthwatering and it's such a good experience on the big screen uh, the way it looks the way it sounds i was just wondering as as we're a cinema podcast are you a big cinema goer yourself is that something that you you get time to do in your personal life uh there are times i can do that and other times i cannot <laughs> <laughs> obviously because i'm shooting but i love i love going to see movies and it's you know it's uh it's a sharing time with uh, friends or family and also people you don't know. I like that because they react in a different way than you are. And there's a, and also the big screen is, is a special experience. Mm. You know, it's the, the senses are differently engaged. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's a special treat you're giving yourself. But I'm very picky about the films I'm watching. You know, I don't, I don't go if I, you know, I, I, I go for a director I love or actors I want to see or the storytelling, you know, I've heard of. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 I'm choosing carefully. I mean, because it's, it's a time commitment, isn't it? Not just the watching the film, but the travel to the cinema. So you want to make sure you're, you're spending your time wisely and kind yeah. of have an experience exactly. uh, that you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, well, I, and this film is very much a sensorial experience mm. and even though you cannot smell and taste but while watching it you can <laughs> absolutely i think i think it does a, it's a magic trick isn't it you know, yeah. there's no like we physically aren't smelling it or tasting it but the way the images have been captured and the sound of the cooking is so rich like my mouth was watering uh, <laughs> watching this film yeah. um, it really is a, a marvelous piece of, of, of work and and something that i think people want to see again and again and i do think it will become one of those sort of classics yeah. uh, that people will put on yeah uh, you know, um, so thank you so much for this. Thank gift you very of, of much. The movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure to talk, and thank you for doing Same our Q and A's as well. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, those were our four new releases um, and our four film reviews, thanks to Iana and Campbellay. But whilst we had them in the pod booth, uh, we always love to ask our critics what's currently on in cinemas that they would recommend, and what's the next big film coming out that they're looking forward to. I wanted to ask, what's still in cinemas that you think is worth going to see while you still can? Well, it might be a bit difficult to see now. Hopefully there's still places nearby you can see it, but I'd love to recommend Godzilla Minus One. I'm not exactly the biggest aficionado in, in Godzilla movies, but I feel like this is a real, real, you know, top tier Godzilla movie. I saw it for the third time in IMAX <laughs> last weekend and I feel like that's the perfect place to see it. You need to see it, you know, on the largest screen possible. Of course, you know, you have those great, you know, Godzilla destroying buildings, you know, causing chaos, all of these things you expect. But at the same time, it's also this really, this really urgent movie about, you know, Japan sort of wrestling with how it moves forward after the war and how that, you know, Godzilla is a sort of manifestation of that. And um, so in that way, it was a really fascinating film in the aspects where Godzilla is on and off screen. And I thought it was a really great, it was a really great time. Aren't they doing a black and white cut of it? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I, I will see that. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what about you, Campbell? Round four. <laughs> um, mine feels like a fairly obvious one as well but I completely fell in love with The Boy and the Heron that was another 
uh, well, The Boy and the Heron by Hayao Miyazaki, his first film in 10 years, his second last movie, <laughs> where the man has tried to retire maybe three times, it's not working out. But yeah, I think I saw that a few times in the cinema as well. And um, I was just really taken with how slow it is. Because um, Ghibli movies, I think they have a reputation for being, uh, well, films by Studio Ghibli, they have a reputation for being very patient and considered and nice and pastoral, which I don't think is I don't think is true, really, not strictly. But uh, this one feels like it's working overtime to dispel that particular imagery because it's quite disturbing and grimy and sad and there's this amazing sequence right at the beginning where he's running through this where the main character Mahito uh it's set during World War II and a fire breaks out at a hospital that his mum works at and he's running through the flames in the city to get to the hospital and everything sort of blurs into this weird nightmarish mess and it's nothing like Studio Ghibli or maybe even Miyazaki himself has made for ever if not for a really long time um and i think it's really worth seeing because it i mean yeah 10 years since the last Hayao Miyazaki movie maybe we'll never get another one it's a very unique opportunity to go and see something incredible if well in my opinion it's very it's very strange but i welcome that strangeness Kamley i'm curious about if there are any films that you're excited about that are coming out soon Films are hardly known. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny because I wasn't the biggest booster of her last film, Saint Maud, but I'm really excited about Love Lies Bleeding by Rose Glass. Um, I'm a big fan of Bound by the Wachowskis, and this sort of looks like Bound with bodybuilders, <laughs> and it just looks like really great, gritty. Uh, gritty is not a good word anymore, but you know it's a it's a movie with some grit. It just looks really exciting, like a good old genre flick. More of the, I think maybe more of the kind of thing I was hoping to see from Saint Maud. Makes me sound like I'm inattentive and I can't pay attention to quiet things, <laughs> but um, I just think it looks really exciting. And Christian Stewart is always incredible in every role that she picks, and this one seems like a especially exciting one for her. What about you? I will say one I actually have seen, which is uh, Evil Does Not Exist by uh, Ryusuke uh. Hamaguchi. And I guess the premise of the film is that uh, there's this father and daughter and they live in this, you know, idyllic countryside village uh, outside of Tokyo. And they have this really lovely, tranquil wife where the father is sort of the local handyman. He does every small job. He collects water and he, you know cleans and he does and he chops wood and all these things but there's this encroaching plot to sort of build a glamping site in the village and uh, all the all the locals are really hesitant to accept the plan even though they don't really have a say in it and sort of introducing glamping into this really quiet Japanese film sounds like those things would clash but it actually works really well and I feel like it's such a it's a really quiet film, but it's sort of broaching these topics of environmentalism and industrialism in this really delicate way, in the way that, you know, there are no real villains. It sort of wants you to put faces to the people who are destroying the landscape, but you come to learn that, you know, these are just real people who have 
good intentions and don't realize, you know, the destruction that they're about to do and that all of these people are sort of multifaceted in that way. So yeah, I feel like it was a really sort of nuanced, delicate take on on these sorts of ideas. So where can people find you and your great opinions online? Uh, thanks, Gambler. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ayana Murray. And um, my writing, I guess you'll find me in, in British GQ these days. Uh, days? And maybe dazed. Um, that's also a place <laughs> I write for. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm online sometimes. Where can people find you, Cam? At a cabin in the woods, I guess. Uh, you can find <laughs> me sometimes posting at Campbell A. Campbell on Twitter. I write for all sorts. A lot about animation, actually. Um, sometimes for Vulture, sometimes for other places. Uh, who knows? Might be people, keep people guessing. <laughs> and here we are, the end of the show. Wow, that was a bumper edition of the podcast. Four movies, three guests, two guest film critics, uh, and me. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you, of course, to Campbell A. Campbell and Iana Murray for being our guest film critics. Also, big thank yous to Sandra Huller, Christian Trudeau, and Juliet Binoche uh, for taking the time out of their day to talk to us on this podcast. For more things like Picture House Cinemas Listed, for more things, such as uh, news, uh, what's on at your local Picture House, please visit picturehouses.com. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, that's at picturehouses on all social networks, uh, X, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, you name it, we're there. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please do leave a star rating and, and give us a follow. We've got loads of podcasts coming up this month. In fact, I should mention, uh, you heard uh, reviews earlier of the Iron Claw, and uh, we've got a special podcast with the director of the Iron Claw, Sean Durkin, and we've also got our special podcast with the cast and director of American Fiction, also in the pod feed. So please check those out. Just need to say a big thank you to Stripped Media, to Kobe for producing this episode, and to Laura for editing this podcast. And uh, and yeah, stick around, stay on the pod feed, lots of interview specials, and we'll be back again in March for another review show with two guest film critics. Enjoy the movies, folks, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.